going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, gentlemen, uh, we don't always like to divulge when we record these, but it is... uh, It's 3 (laughs) a.m. It's 3 a.m. It feels like it. And the Easter libations are still running through our blood. (laughs) We were worried about all the uh, illicit things we saw over the Triduum, and we decided... No, I'm just kidding. It's Easter Monday, and we are overjoyed to be celebrating uh, the wonderful uh, celebration of Easter and Easter Triduum. And we are riding that high into this week by recording our, our next podcast on the general instruction of the Roman Missal. So yeah. uh, I'm going to go take a nap and you guys take the oh, reins. Yeah. And too, I'll Chris. probably chime in every night. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm the tired and grumpy one here. <laughs> hey, did you, one of my highlights of the uh, Triduum was uh, our pastor sung the, the Alleluia. Did you did you guys see that? Yeah. Did you see that? This is my first Easter Triduum mm-hmm. at the Abbey here at the campus, mm-hmm. Benedictine St. Benedict's Abbey, kansasmonks.org. And man, did they do a good job. Beautiful chants. So Some of the Graduella Romanum, a lot of Adam Bartlett's chanting in mm-hmm. English, and the prior Brother Levin sang the Exalted on like one day's notice. He did a fine job. It was really That nice. is awesome. Well, he didn't know when Easter was? <laughs> no. Well, somebody who was supposed to do it uh, got a voice problem or something so you had to fill in at the last second. Uh, but and isn't that the way is uh, uh you can plan i mean you obviously know a year in advance when easter is but it, it just life happens and things change and somebody gets sick and then you gotta adjust this and so yeah i really had that experience this year it was it's one thing to read the stuff out of the book and talk about on the podcast but when you got to show up that night to do it you got you're just gonna have to make some adjustments yeah and the exalted's hard I mean it doesn't sound hard but it's actually kind of not intuitive and there's some weird note variations and it's hard to sing so yeah Chris just as a brief aside we had our choir director did it do mm-hmm. it you know and I know that there's a you know an order of mm-hmm. uh people you know priest deacon and then then a, a lay person but in some situations, it probably would reveal a little more beauty if an actual, you know, professional singer sang it, yeah. right? You know? Yeah, you know, and all these things, is you've got uh, pros and cons for, uh, you know, unless you just have the, the, the perfect deacon ready to sing it perfectly, and that, that just is not the case in most places in the world. So you got to say, well, you got to weigh this against that and make the best decision, but... Yeah, there's certainly a lot to see in here over the true to him. So. Well, I'll tell you this. The, the only nugget of wisdom that I took as a father is that Isaac noticed that all the statues were covered on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. And on at the Easter vigil, they were gone. And I got to explain that to him. And he just wanted to tell everybody from that point on. Awesome. <laughs> so awesome. There's, there's little uh, there's little great uh, nuggets of joy throughout all of that, especially when you, you bring your kids, you know? Yeah, young, budding liturgical theologian. Uh, mm-hmm. They love I to hope f- so. watch the fire. It's I so great. So. You get to hold... When else do you give a candle to a three-year-old, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hold that candle the whole time. 
Ah, uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's see if we can keep this momentum going for uh, 50 days, <clears throat> or at least the next 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever comes first. <laughs> Crossing the border uh, from the liturgy of the word to the liturgy of the Eucharist. Yes. Yeah. So we, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, Dennis, as kind of a ramp up to entering the liturgy of the Eucharist. You led us through some uh, Jean Hani mm-hmm. things on uh, sacrifice. What, uh, what's, what are the things? I mean, I remember, of course, but uh, what are some of the takeaways uh, that we should bear in mind as we uh, move into this liturgy of the Eucharist? From Jean-Hanis' ideas of sacrifice? Well, the primary, one of the primary things is it's not just about laseity and um, validity, although those things are important, right? Did the priest say the right words? Sure. But the much broader context is what Jean-Hanis calls the mimo drama. Mimo means like the same, right? It's the same drama, but in the form of a rite. So... When Christ says the words, you have a, um, a dedicated person authorized by Christ to say the words of Christ. That's the ordained priest that Christ gave that authority to. And then Christ says, this is my body, and he gives him the bread. So when the bread is broken on the altar, when the bread is given to the Father, when the bread piece of the bread goes into the wine and the blood of Christ and separated, then it's a resurrected body. So it doesn't look like Calvary, but it's the same reality in the form of a rite, and we get to participate in it. Fantastic. Yeah. So all of that awesome theology that he talks about and you talked about the last couple of times gets turned into a ritualized form. And that's, but you know, if if you, if you don't see the underlying substance of it, then it's just, you know, empty ritual. uh, Yeah. Just empty rote stuff. So it's Mm -hmm. always good to keep in mind that it's trying to manifest those realities. And I'm not just trying to say this, Dennis, but that was like a really good, we, we called it a detour, but I thought that was a really good yeah, primer. Well, now you know why I have honeyitis. Yeah. But well, you know, we were about to talk to, about. We great. went down to Old St. Pat's on Palm Sunday, Old St. Patrick's in Kansas City, which is run by the Institute of Christ the King. So it's extraordinary form, but it's also their very particular use of it. And so we had um, the palms blessed and it took a long time. It was like 90 minutes before you got a palm in your hand. And they made us come up to the communion rail one at a time and kneel and receive a piece of palm and then we kiss the palm and kiss the hand of the priest who gave it to us and it really felt like the palm was this thing coming down from god for us uh given you to kissed us. a palm and then the priest palm well yeah it's the back of his hand yeah first it was the palm then it was the back of his hand oh right yeah and then um then we went the procession maybe this is normal in the extraordinary form i just have never seen it before but the couple of the canters ran ahead and they go inside the vestibule the narthex and they start singing this psalm about the the children cry out christ is the lord and then we like answer them back and sing the verse and they sing a latin verse and it went on for like 10 verses and you're outside the doors are closed and people inside are singing and you're singing back and you i just felt this like desire growing in me to go in and That's at first awesome. i was kind of annoyed that it was long and latin and like we couldn't hear them too well but then i realized what was actually happening i was participating in being outside of the heavenly jerusalem or the earthly jerusalem the doors were closed. You hear the song of the inside, and you just want to get in. And then the priest tapped the door with the pectoral cross, knocked on the door, and then they opened it. And it was like, yes, finally we get to go in into the city of Jerusalem, represented by the church. And that's where I really experienced this mimodrama thing. You know, here's this reality that we can think about, but I really felt it in my body and in my mind, like, let me in, let me in. And uh, then they let us in. It's pretty good. Did you, Dennis, did you do Tenebrae this year? I didn't know. And have you guys have done it where you you uh, not rap on the pews, right? As like the the earthquaking, you know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, I've been a part of a Tenebrae thing. Yeah, I always thought that was really cool because it kind of, you know, you're you're rapping on the pew, you're, you know, hitting the pew and making all this loud earthquaking noise Mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. And then the then the the candle comes, the light of Christ comes and returns. Yeah. And well, we say you want to participate kind of in it, and here are ways you participate. All right, oh. I'm done with the preamble, Chris. So I, <laughs> I right. take the relic and hand it to you. And it is time for uh, a liturgy question. Uh, so <laughs> that really did go faster than I was uh, expecting. Okay, so we're 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 continuing to go through the order of mass, and now we're up to the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so, if you're uh, keeping score at home, we're at number twenty-one in the order of mass number 21 and then we'll make some references to the general instruction as well so uh this is what uh rubric number 21 says in the order of mass right so there's right in the middle of the missile it says kind of a funny way to begin this i don't know your translation dennis but it says when all this has been done the offertory chant begins all of this this is the uh, uh the liturgy of the word so, which ended with the uh, universal prayer or bidding prayers as uh, it sounds like a recipe. Now, when all that's done, yeah. Yeah. add wet ingredients to preheat the oven. Yeah. <laughs> so, when all this has been done, the offertory chant begins. Meanwhile, the ministers place the corporal, the purificator, the chalice, the pall, and the missal on the altar. Period. Okay. What I thought uh, I want to talk about first is all these things that they that they name because I don't know how many people might uh, know or not know what. Uh, what these uh, items are. So this is at uh, mentioned at um, number uh, 21, uh, but also germ uh, 73 and 139 talks about these items. So let's take the first one. Corporal. What is a corporal? One level below a sergeant. Yeah. I, I was trying to do something like that. Well, it sounds like the word uh, body is in there, right? Corpus, uh-huh. corporal. Uh-huh. But it's a white, uh-huh. uh, it's kind of like a white napkin-sized thing that's usually folded up and you open up and put it on the altar, right? And then the yeah. patent and the chalice go on top of it. Yeah, so you're right. It's related to corpus and it's uh, meant to uh, contain or, yeah, I think contains the best word, any fragments, uh, say from the fraction of uh, the host later in the celebration of the mass or elsewhere. It's meant to, yeah, so you would you'd keep the, the corpus on the corporal and it would collect any fragments. But for the corporal to do its job properly, Dennis uh, or Jesse, it's folded up in a particular way. I mean, describe uh, to the listeners what a corporal is if they don't know. Well, it's kind of folded into what, nine squares? And usually it has nine a little squares. red embroidered cross so you know what the top is. Or is it the bottom? <laughs> well, it's Where like usually like a little Greek cross, so it's hard to tell what's the top. Where does the cross go? Yeah, it it doesn't have to have a cross, but you're right. Most of them do. And I think most of the time that cross is at the bottom, you know, closest to the closest to the priest. And yeah, there's a certain way to fold it up so that everything kind of folds into itself. And so any particles would kind of come to the center. I think generally is uh, this works right. You'd fold it from if it were open, you'd fold it from bottom, the bottom third up. And then the top third down, and then you would fold the right third over, and then the left third over, right? So if you did this in reverse order, this is one of the things I learned at the LI, was uh, if it's folded up properly, you would open the corporal like the cover of a book. So if you do it that way, it always unfolds the proper way each time, right? And the problem is, is if it doesn't get unfolded the proper way, you can't just grab it by the corner and switch it around and flip it and move it, because then it defeats the whole purpose of uh, the corporal. And so this is a very, 
jarring thing. Any piece of the Eucharist would go flying. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. So that's, uh, yeah. So that's the corporal. This And so when it's all uh, unfolded, you know, each of these squares must be, I don't know, six inches. So it's like 18 by 18. It's usually very starched uh, as well. So it kind of has a very rigid uh, feel as, as well. Okay. Purificator. What's a purificator? It's a fancy uh, paper towel, but very precise <laughs> to clean out the chalice, right? Or especially after uh-huh. it's been rinsed. Yeah, to help purify uh, yeah. the sacred vessels uh, and, and, and to be used. Uh, the, the priest can often use it or would often use it to, while he would receive uh, uh, the the precious blood, something like that. Yeah, so it's an absorbent, specially uh, laundered and cared for thing. And this too is probably 18 inches I don't know, long, but probably only, I don't know, six or seven inches wide. And it's usually folded in thirds and then uh, uh, in uh, in half. So that's a purificator. Okay, uh, you know what the chalice is. But look at, uh, there's, uh, there's some norms for uh, sacred vessels to begin in the general instruction at number 327. Because oftentimes people have questions about the chalice uh, in, the, in the patent. I remember the 70s. When it was really trendy to have, you know, nuns making ceramic chalices for you back in the groovy days of the seventies, kind of a kind of a no no, right? Well, I only I only know that yeah, people talk about what the chalice is made out of a lot, and I think that's probably pretty important. Yeah, is that is that? Well, I don't know what's uh, what's the text say. Uh, look, look, Dennis at uh, three twenty eight and three twenty nine. Sacred vessels are to be made from precious metal. Okay, so sorry, Sister Joan, ceramic. <laughs> If they are made from that metal that rusts or from a metal less precious than gold, then ordinarily they should be gilded on the inside. Hmm, I wonder what met- metals are not less precious than gold, platinum or something. Does it say anything about heavy metal? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, maybe in 329 it does. So this is uh, Diocese of the U.S. Sacred vessels may also be made from other solid uh, materials which in the common estimation of each region are considered precious or noble. For example, ebony or harder woods, provided that the material are suitable for sacred use. Preference is always to be uh, given to materials who do not easily break. Yeah, so I think that would take out your glass, your crystal, your ceramic, your pottery and other things. Uh, like now, that. I wonder why America has this permission to substitute other materials. I mean, probably maybe it traces back to our pioneer days and it was pretty hard to get a gold vessel across the ocean or something. But um, ebony and other hardwoods, is that like actually something that a lot of people yeah. are asking for these days? I don't know. Have you ever? I don't even know if I, I've seen one in closets and in storage. I don't think I've ever been to a mass uh, <laughs> that I've noticed that being used, but I guess it's uh, legit. But again, it can't be absorbent in any way. And I don't know how most wood, you know, if it has some sort of, every wood has some sort of grain, I don't know, would uh, be susceptible to absorbing some of the precious blood. No, I know in Africa, for instance, um, you know, certain woods would be considered very precious, maybe even more precious than gold, maybe even even easier to get, you know. And I can see why maybe that's a permission in case there's an African community in the U.S. or something, but... Anyway, I think it would strike people as kind of funny that wood, even a fine wood like ebony, would be considered uh, less than gold. Yeah. 
I think a bishop, I mean, if, if it were going to be blessed, uh, I think our bishop at least would kind of look twice at it before <laughs> blessing of it. Anyway, so there's some brief things on uh, the chalice. Let's go back to order of mass number uh, 21. So corporal, purificator, chalice, Paul. Yeah, let's talk about the Paul. Yeah, yeah. What's what's a Paul? I don't see it. P-A-L-L. Jesse? That's the that's the white square that lays on top of the chalice when uh, before it's placed on the altar, before the... Eucharistic prayer. It is. It's, yeah. And it's rigid, right? It is. Right. Um, I don't know. I should look this up before. What is, what is, is there an etymolo- etymological insight to Paul? Right. Because there's a, there's a funeral Paul right. mm-hmm. as well that covers the, <coughs> the uh, coffin at a funeral mass. So does it mean. And- Speaking of coffin, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you up. couldn't have planned that more perfectly. <laughs> Actually, it comes from Old English, P-A-L, um, rich cloak or cloth, altar cloth, purple robe. It's related to pallium, hmm. uh, cloak, coverlet. So, you know, the Pope gives the pallium to what, to the cardinals. Is that right? Hmm. A garment worn see, by Christians instead of the Roman toga. I was, see, now I would have gone another route wrongly, apparently. Don't, don't we use the term Paul, like a Paul fell upon the uh, the audience or something like mm-hmm. that? Is that it right? It also means tired or insipid. Uh, ah, yes. Now <laughs> you're talking my yeah. language. Oh. But that's from yeah. a different word, pollen. Oh, which maybe means, your mom should have named you Paul. Yeah. That's related <laughs> to the word a Paul. Paul. See, that's, I, thought I thought you'd make a joke like you're appalled, Jesse, but <laughs> that's related to uh, pale and like P-A-L-E, like you're Paled in your face, so shock. Okay. So, anyway, all right. So you got, false you got a corp. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. So the Paul then is used to cover uh, the chalice, and it's re- it's removed and replaced at various points during the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, and what's its purpose? Right, practically, just to keep dust, protect and it, yeah. bugs, and things like that. Uh, yeah. It, but it's also you know more than a practical. I mean, it uh, its practical use should so should show to the people that there's something precious. Uh, uh, within the chalice too, it's like okay. uh, when you remove it and place it back. It's like grace on, grace off, grace on, grace. <laughs> flies in, flies out. <laughs> All right, so you got your corporal, your purificator, your chalice and paten, which is, means plate, Paul, and the missal on the altar. And on the whole, there shouldn't be anything else on the altar, right? You got your candles and po- possibly an altar cross, but other types of things ought not to uh, to be there. Hmm. Okay, let's go to 22. We'll go back to the offertory chant here in just a second. Uh, It is desirable that uh, the faithful express their participation by making an offering, bringing forward bread and wine for the celebration of the Eucharist and perhaps other gifts to relieve the needs of the church and of the poor. All right, so why don't we start with the the bread and wine? So, you know, just like there's questions about um, what can... The chalice and the sacred vessels be made out of people often have questions about what can the bread and the wine be made from as well you can find this at uh number 320 to 322 in the uh in the germ well it says non-absorbent material like uh what glass for cruets oh, what, what, hang on dennis we're, we're on to the bread and wine oh okay i thought you said what those things should be made of three 320 so it says uh the bread for celebrating the Eucharist must be made only from wheat, must be recently made, and according to the ancient tradition of the Latin church, must be unleavened. What what constitutes as recently? Because yeah. 
You know, you buy these things in bulk. You go to Costco and you get, you know, or wherever you go, <laughs> and you buy this big jar of, uh, you know, wafers. Ah, what what constitutes as recent? Yeah, I don't know. I think that that's <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, well, even look at the next one, three twenty one. By reason of the sign, which is what sacraments are, types of signs, it's required that the material for the Eucharistic celebration truly have the appearance of food. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And probably, that's therefore, the taste case. of food. Yeah. So, yeah. So all of those things are mixed together. What does recently made mean? What does appearance of food mean? Uh, you know, by way of the sign. Um, yeah. Some of these, you, you really have to wonder how ancient <laughs> some of these uh, 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 Eucharistic breads breads that are used for 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 the eucharist uh, really are but is that why maybe the reasoning some people use to they use the kind of the real unleavened bread sometimes what is that called i forgot the name for it the- uh yeah i i i don't i i think it is i mean see so if you go to 321 Therefore, it's desirable that the Eucharistic bread, even though unleavened and made in the traditional form, be fashioned in such a way that the priest at mass with the people is truly able to break it into parts. Okay? Um, but the, the problem is, I mean, I don't know. I don't make bread. Maybe you guys do. I don't think you do, Dennis. Uh, yeah, how do you write? What ingredients can you use to make Eucharistic bread? Water and flour, right? Water That's and it. flour. That, that's it. And so to make, uh, so it's it's hard to get something that's made only from water and wheat. And that's supposed to uh, resemble food to, it's, it's hard to do that. All right. So this is where temptations come in to adulterate it with eh, maybe some yeast, can't even use yeast, but add some of that, add some other sugars, add some honey, add some other stuff, uh, because this helps it, apparently in the, in the bread baking process mm-hmm. but this uh makes your eucharistic uh matter certainly illicit and potentially uh invalid if it ceases to become wheat bread and becomes by the common estimation something other than wheat bread raisin cake. raisin cake, cake yeah. yeah yeah cake or raisin bread or mm. i don't know something else then it's uh, uh, not only illicit, but it's also uh, invalid. I'm sure you've heard Father Lodge's famous story. I, I must have told it to you because I, lo- I love to tell it. You've told it on this before, but I would love to hear oh, it yeah? again. Well, Father Lodge is a professor at uh, Mundelein Seminary. And apparently he went out somewhere once. I don't know if it was a convent or whatever to say mass. And he wasn't in charge of setting anything up because he was just visiting. And in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer, you know, in the offertory, they bring over this bread. It's got raisins in it. And he has nothing he can say, like stop the mass or whatever. So he's stuck with this thing. So his joke was that he would say, this, except for the raisins, is my body. <laughs> and I don't know if he said that out loud, but sort of under his breath trying, under his breath, trying to uh, keep the raisins the intent- being He wasn't intending for the raisins to yeah, be only the wheat, so. consecrated. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good job, Jesse. Sacramental intention. All right. From the corner. I suddenly, <laughs> from the corner, from down, down. <laughs> But that uh, 321 goes on then to say, however, small hosts are not at all excluded when the large number of receiving communion uh, is necessary. Um, Yeah. And so uh, there's actually quite a number of recent, I don't know if clarifications are right, but reinforcements of what what constitutes valid and licit matter that have come from the Holy See in uh, recent years. But again, made only from wheat, recently made, and unleavened. Okay. Now to this raisin question, 
What about the wine? Look at uh, th- 322. What do you what do you got there? It must uh, be uh, made from the fruit of the grapevine. So does that mean raisins? They're from the fruit of the grapevine. Yeah. I think you can actually make, I mean, I can, but it, it would not uh, invalidate the matter if you made them from raisins. Natural the, and unadulterated. Yeah. Yeah, so fruit from the vine. Wait, there's such thing as raisin wine? I yeah. don't know. You can make anything, any any uh, sweet fruit you can make wine out of. You ever been to a liquor store, Jesse? <laughs> I mean, there's all conceivable uh, manner of things in there. So anyway, you seen yeah. That, you seen that meme as a potato that said, if this, can be a, if this can be vodka, you can be a saint? There you go. <laughs> I've not seen that. Now, what about preservatives, Chris? Uh-huh. Do you know about preservatives? I've heard well, you so, can't have them in wine because that adulterates it. Well, no, uh, apparently. So uh, where that, that last line, unadulterated, that is without a mixture of extraneous substances. I think I've seen clarifications that say, you know, certain types of preservatives or sulfates, or other, again, this is another thing I don't make, is wine, are a natural part of the winemaking process. So they wouldn't be considered you know, uh, foreign sub- substances or extraneous substances, like perhaps extra sugars or flavors. Maybe you're going to put some strawberry flavor or something like that. Uh, well, nitrine, not good. <laughs> no, no. So I think if, if these are considered a natural part of the winemaking process, they would not be considered uh, extraneous. But still, I mean, this is why you can buy from uh, religious goods stores altar wines that are, you know, it takes all the guesswork out of it. You know, it, it's it's made according to these uh, uh, criteria right here. So, not know. altered for your altar. Yeah, that's that's exactly if it. If you just go to the liquor store and buy wine, you may not really know what's in it. Huh? Yeah, you may not know. Uh, it would, yeah, it would most cert- almost certainly be a valid. It could possibly even be illicit, but you're not entirely sure. Chris, I, I yeah. heard this. I don't know how valid this is, but it makes a lot of sense to me. I was this priest was telling me that one of the reasons that Napa Valley has so many uh, vineyards is because they needed to make all of the wine for all of the the liturgies. And so like Mm. the reason why people started vineyards out there was for the mass because they needed a a source to create this wine from themselves Mm. rather than shipping it from Europe. I've never heard that, but uh, it'd be a cool story if it's true. Makes sense that the Spanish would have come there and needed it. Yeah. Good climate. All right, look at uh, three uh, 323 before we go back to the order of mass. Let's see. Diligent care should be taken to ensure that the bread uh, and wine intended for the Eucharist are kept in a perfect state of conservation. <laughs> that is, the wine does not turn to vinegar or the bread spoil or become too hard to be broken easily. Hmm. Now, what about this question? Should is it red wine or white wine? Yeah. Did we either. ever talk about this? It could be either. Technically, I guess it could be either. I like the symbolism of red wine since it does take blood on the appearance red. of blood. I wouldn't say it would be necessary, but kind of yeah. helpful. But should the wine look like blood? Well, doesn't have to. No, <laughs> it's supposed to. It's no, words, it's not. You know? No, it's not though. Right, it's supposed to have the appearance of bread and wine. It's not supposed to have the appearance of flesh of and blood. Flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Right? So. Uh, that the the wine be red so that it looks like blood. I think the intention is right, but it's not 
quite, I don't, as far as I can tell, it's not quite what our sacramental theology would say. It, so like in these Eucharistic miracles where the, the host bleeds or turns into flesh or something like that, um, those are kind of like Eucharistic miracles twice removed. Uh, it's a miracle upon a miracle. But um, again, the appearance, the taste, the smell, all these things are not really to be of flesh and blood, but of it's supposed to taste like bread and it's supposed to look like and taste like uh, wine because through these efficacious signs, this is what makes the inward reality present. So yeah. anyway, I remember you question. asked years ago, should you make your host in the shape of a little gingerbread man? Because it will look more like Jesus. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. That doesn't make it right. more Jesus. It, and it doesn't even make us think it's more like eating human flesh. Mm -hmm. It's just a weird gingerbread cookie <laughs> Eucharist shape, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, one more uh, sort of interesting thing here. Um, look at uh, 324. Uh, Je Jesse, do you have that? If after the consecration or as he receives communion, the priest notices that not wine, but only water was poured into the chalice, he pours the water into some container, pours wine with water into the chalice and consecrates it, saying the part of the narrative relating to the consecration of the chalice without being obliged to consecrate the bread again. What? That is a strange little insertion there. Uh, yeah. Is that a thing that like happens a lot? I don't Well, go back to your color of wine. Wow. So imagine you're using white wine, something like that. And you got you guys have both served mass before. You got two cruets, right? And they almost Look the same, don't they? Mm -hmm. So imagine yeah. that happened. Maybe the, the priest got him confused. The altar server helped to get him confused. And so let's say the priest poured in what he thought was wine. So he filled up you know, an inch or two uh, in the chalice of water. And then he put just a dribble or something of what he thought was water into the chalice, but it was wine. So all intents and purposes, it's water that's in the chalice. So maybe mm. this will help make your case, Dennis. Yeah. Not, not so much on uh, uh, sacramental theology grounds, but on practical grounds. If you've got red wine, you know that you're dealing with wine there. You're not going to be able yeah. to confuse it. I knew I was right. So, In a lot more. of cases, I would say, like when I've been a server, I present the cruet that has the wine. Do you, you know, what, I'm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So the priest doesn't really have a choice. They, they can't see them next to each other or whatever. And so that could be an altar server's uh, problem. But yeah. If you read that instruction, it basically says, if you didn't put wine in by accident, pour out the water, put wine in, and consecrate it. <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. funny thing. Like it doesn't. The general instruction doesn't give remedies for every other kind of error, but um, I suppose this must have come in for some reason historically, right? And it just stayed in. Yeah, but I, I'm, I've never witnessed this, thankfully, uh, and I expect most people listening ha haven't as well. But you, you, I mean, you could see how it, it's not beyond the. Pay the Paul, the pale that, uh, uh <laughs> that this could uh, possibly That's a happen. real winner right there. I like it. <laughs> Michael, give us some kind of cool sound. Thank you. All right, let's go back to the order of mass and finish up uh, number 22, uh, as we finish up this podcast. Okay. So it's desirable that the faithful express, um, let's see. Their participation. Uh, yeah. So Dennis, you'll know about this, especially because this was a huge thing for the liturgical movement to reinstate the offertory procession of the faithful. What was their, you know, I mean, you, you almost to a, to, to a man, you, you all of these, uh, these fathers wanted this reinstating of the offertory procession. What's up with that? Well, I imagine the idea is that the people then would bring their sacrifice to the altar so that the head and the members could be doing the same thing. All that mystical body theology, the priest 
as the head, as the one who's in charge of consecrating, but the um, people have their offering to make as well, and it should be externally signified. Yeah, or the word, in fact, it, use, it could use signified here. It uses the word uh, express. So it is desirable that the faithful signify their participation by making an offering. Yeah, so what happens is in the kind of the, I don't know, the the spirituality, the theology of the offertory procession is everybody's bringing essentially his or her own self, uh, and that gets represented by the bread and the wine. So, you know, everybody's sort of in or uh, symbolized by or expressed by, signified by these small altar breads that are going forward. And if we can actually, in fact, I think, you know, what, what they sort of wanted was not you know, we've got that good old-fashioned American uh, get her doneism. Is uh, is they would really want the people themselves to come forward in this procession and bring their gifts or whatever it is uh, forward, because it's a true expression of them becoming a part of the Eucharist. So, let me just. This is a really good uh, paragraph here from. Uh, it, don't worry, Jesse. I don't read the whole thing. Uh, but it talks about in the beginning was the word. <laughs> <laughs> It says in the Eucharist, the church becomes also uh, the sacrifice of Christ becomes also the sacrifice of the members of his body. The lives of the faithful, their praise, sufferings, prayer and work are united with those of Christ and with his total offering and so acquire new value. Christ's sacrifice present on the altar makes it possible for all generations of Christians to be united with his offering. And so this really goes part and parcel with, like you said, Dennis, the mystical body theology, the act of participation theology is that our true participation is joining ourselves to the offering of Christ and the Holy Spirit to uh, the Father. And so that's the the theology uh, behind that. I want to point something out here too. And Chris, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I suspect I am not. But whenever I've been asked to bring up the gifts, and I, this is just kind of, you know, in, in a before working at the LI and maybe even before hearing this really read out specifically, but somebody asked me to bring up the gifts and in my head, it's like, Oh, here's Jesse Weiler. I'm, I'm doing my role. I'm being a liturgical minister here. But in the, in the mind of the, you know, figures of the liturgical movement, I think probably a better mentality would be, I'm a member of this mystical body and I am, I am bringing an offering from everybody else in the congregation. And that would be full active participation in that role as bringing up the gifts is not just thinking I'm, I myself am doing this thing to, to get the gifts from here to there, but I am gathering all of the intentions of everybody in this church together mm -hmm. here to present to, uh, on behalf of them to the priest. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Exactly. I, mean, part I wish more. I wish more people knew that because, <laughs> like, because it's a two-way street. Not only yeah. do I have to offer something, but then that person has to be engaged with that offering as mm -hmm. well. I guess mm -hmm. they don't have to be, but it, it's a fullness of what's happening. No, I would say they do, and we'll get to this uh, in, uh, in uh, when we get to the orate fratres. Is, yeah, the the only way that uh, the people in the you know tenth pew on the left side are going to get up onto the altar is if they put themselves up on the altar. You can't carry them up there, Jesse, and the priest mm -hmm. can't come down yeah. and get them. And God the Father cannot reach down and move them. They have to willingly, with God's grace, his assistance, get up there. So yeah, people do need to know this. Otherwise, this sort of restored offertory is just another rote 
empty, mm-hmm. meaningless uh, procession that we could probably just dispense with altogether and just have the bread and wine brought over from the credence mm-hmm. table and say everybody, you know, about five minutes uh, in their day. And I'm, but, not, I'm not recommending this, but it's almost as if we all have our own wafers at home, communion wafers mm-hmm. at home. And then when we enter the church, we put them on the offertory table. Well, and, and then and, that person offers, them, you know what I mean? And sure. we would never do that because it, you can't be sure what's what and all that yeah. type of stuff. Well, but the, and, and, but the, yeah. the thought of that, that's kind of what we should be thinking. Bingo. I mean, in the good old bad old days, that is exactly what they did is everybody brought uh, from their homes the, the matter for the uh, for the sacrifice. But let's uh, let's double down on that point. Uh, and this will be the last point uh, uh, here at number 22. They don't just bring up the bread and wine, which expresses themselves. So it's not only something from the mystical body, but that last sentence there, and perhaps other gifts to relieve the needs of the church uh, and of the poor. Cash money, baby. uh, But it's not just from the mystical body, it's gifts for the mystical body uh, as well. And so, you know, that's a, it's, it's the mystical body theology again, that uh, Dennis and the Pius XII uh, talk about all the time. Although this high theology does bring some struggles. I remember when I was some one of my Newman centers in college or grad school or something, they used to have a bowl of unconsecrated hosts at the door. And you would take one out of the bowl and put it in a basket as you came in, which meant you were going to receive Eucharist that day. And everybody was touching everybody else's hosts. And you never knew what you were getting. And then people forgot. So they had to consecrate other ones anyway. But it was like this idea of I'm, I'm putting myself into this, you know, notion. I also remember the early days when I was at Mundelein, you know, like 2002, three, maybe even when you were there, Chris. Remember they used to have students who would bake the breads for mass. There were little doughy cubes about the size of I don't know a little like a dice. You that, know, that's roll. what I was talking about. We did that at, at Loris a couple of times. Yeah, and it, it was wet and it was made like the day before, and it, it was, did not have the appearance of no, bread. Well, it did have the appearance of bread in a way, but it was like it was like chewy little cubes, and all the crumbs would break off, and so you know you could see how somebody would. Um, the very first thing I heard, I remember a student said, we, we don't know if we need to put a Vigilite next to the vacuum cleaner <laughs> because oh, so much gosh. of the, the host particles and they're looking their hands at the end, right? So you say, okay, well, these little pre-made hosts, they look like styrofoam, right, for all intents and purposes, but they don't crumble and they're not wet and they don't get uh-huh. moldy if you don't eat them right away. You can, you can keep them in the tabernacle if you need to. So there is a kind of like, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't really seem to look like food, but man, does it solve a lot of problems. Then you have the other yeah. side when it looks like food, but it creates all these other problems. Somehow the Easterners managed to do it, right? They use leavened bread that looks like bread, and they managed to uh, find a way to keep it. Yeah, that has its own that has its own problems too, though. So I was at a uh, this podcast is going to go on forever. I was at a uh, visiting a friend, and it was it was in an Eastern uh, right Catholic church where the the consecrated uh, bread would go into the chalice, and then. Uh, communion would be distributed by uh, by a spoon, mm-hmm. the bread and wine together. Well, there was uh, a lot fewer people at this uh, lit- divine liturgy than uh, was anticipated. And there was a lot of consecrated chalice left over that uh, it was just, it, it was rather impractical to, uh, uh, to consume at the end. Right, and all of these things, right? you're trying to hold together, I don't know, competing goods, competing desirable goals or something like that. And, you know, to try to find uh, the right balance. And so, you know, it will say, uh, I think this is Redemptionis Sacramentum, you know, about the 
about the use of, you know, the, the, of, at least in the Western church of, you know, specially made altar breads as, as really, I think the best solution. But again, you know, three-year-old specially made altar breads is, start, is not within the keeping of the norms either. So recently made, specially made altar bread seems to hold all of these things in the best possible way. Anyway. All right. Good. We didn't talk about the offertory chant. Let's make sure we do that next time. Yeah, we'll do it next time. All right. Another two sentences knocked out in 30 minutes. <laughs> we are crushing it. Oh, man. All right. Time for a liturgy question. Yes. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. All right, uh, this question uh, this week co- actually comes from Adoramus Bolton. Chris, you accept yes. questions a lot all the time, so we figured we'd enter that realm. And uh, so we're kind of front-loading something maybe that, that you'll be putting out for mm-hmm. Adoramus. But can you yes. uh, ask the question, and then we'll, we'll answer it. I will. This uh, is a question I find is uh, a common one in the Office for Sacred Worship, and I think a lot of people are confused about it. And it has to do with altar stones. And so I thought, well, Dennis will know the answer to this. So I asked Dennis to write a little uh, response to this in Adoramus Bulletin. In general, the question is, do new altars require altar stones? Question mark. And the answer is no, period. Okay, and here's why. It, we still right, that's a great question, <laughs> and if you have <laughs> Well, we still have a distinction in the current law between a, a fixed altar and a portable altar. But before Vatican II, there was that distinction, but altars still had to be made of stone, even the portable altar. So you can see the challenge then, if you're going to make a portable altar out of stone, it has to be really small. I mean, you can't carry a 500-pound piece of stone around. (laughs) And so you would have an altar uh, stone that was roughly 12 inches square, maybe 14 inches square. Every now and then you'll see priests to this day will take one of those altar stones and put it in his backpack if he's going for a hike and wants to say mass, you know, outside on a and a rock and a hike in the mountains. That way there's actually an altar. So, but what was tricky about it is that oftentimes these little altar stones were set in these big things in a, in a parish that looked like big altars, you know, three feet high, 10 feet wide. And those parts were made of wood or maybe plaster. Um, and so everybody thinks, oh, that's the altar. But in those situations, the altar was just that altar stone, one square foot of one inch thick, marble. So I looked kind at of, the 1903 Catholic kind Encyclopedia. Of inset, uh, yeah, inset, they, like in an elaborate case or something like that. Right. There'd be like a little groove. So you take a router and cut out one square foot deep into the top of what looks like the altar, put this altar stone in it. And then the, you know, the covering, the white cloth, altar cloth would go over it and you wouldn't, you would really not know that it was there. And so even though it looked like it was a full-sized altar, the altar itself was only one square foot, and that was the altar stone because it was portable. But it was consecrated by a bishop. It was anointed. It got the altar crosses. They even carved out a little hole in it to put relics in and then put the cap stone back on. So it was a full consecrated altar. It couldn't be given a, a titular saint because of its portability, but it was an altar. And that's okay if you have to carry an altar around. Maybe you're in the army or something. In fact, the army chaplains were given permission to use one that was six inches square because it was so small, you know, they had to carry it around. In, in the, in Would the those war. be blessed by the bishop and then like tra- then transferred to the parish? Yeah, they, they were consecrated like- by the bishop, yeah, as the altar. Uh, even if it was in the 
it might have been done at the consecration of the church, dedication of the church. Um, but the the rest of the altar, even if it looks like an altar, was not the altar. It was the thing that supported the altar. So the the 1903 Catholic Encyclopedia said. The structure which answers the purpose of an altar when the whole altar is not consecrated, right? So it looks like an altar, but it's not consecrated, except for the one square foot of stone that would sit in there. So if you if you go to like a monastery or something, and there's a lot of altars down the basement from when the monks had to say their own masses every day, maybe those were not permanent fixed altars to the ground uh, because there's so many of them. It was hard to make them out of stone. Maybe it was too expensive. So you might see a wooden altars, and then there'd be an altar stone in each one. That altar stone is the portable altar. That's the same thing. That's an exact synonym. Altar stone equals portable altar. But you can see the problem if you're a liturgical movement scholar in the 20th century and you want fullness of symbolic expression, well, you make an altar made of wood as your high altar, but it's painted to look like marble, and then the actual altar is one square foot of stone. You can see how that's kind of a liturgical minimalism. It's like wearing a tiny little chasuble. It's like one square foot on each side. Or you know how scapulars that we wear, the little tiny one inch square thing when a religious scapular is like, you know, the, double the height of your your body. It's still the same thing, but it's tiny. And so when accidentally this got used, this portable altars became the fixed altar. The church, even in the preconciliar time, wanted the principal altar in a church and every altar if possible to be fixed. That meant stone, fixed to the floor, screwed to the floor, cemented to the floor, couldn't take it apart. If you took it apart, it lost its consecration, actually. They say desecration in the old law, but it lost its consecration if it broke, for instance, or if you took the top off the, the legs that supported it. But what most people did, if you go to a lot of these churches from 1880, 1890, 1910, you had this big wooden altar with a little altar stone in it, and that was called a quasi-fixed altar because the altar stone was not meant to be carried around. It was permanently placed, but it was not fixed to the floor because you could still take it out. And so sometimes old churches, you'll see, they have a collection of these old altar stones and they, they've saved them because there's relics in them and they kind of hang around in, um, in sacristies. So this was a problem. How do we make the portable altar still look like an altar, not be minimized? And so after Vatican II, they gave permission for a portable altar to be made of any material, even not stone, right? A fixed altar has to be made of stone. The mensa, the top part has to be made of stone. But a portable altar can be made of wood, for instance, that you can actually carry around. And so it doesn't have to have an altar stone in it. And therefore, if you're going to make a fixed altar, you don't put an altar stone in it. The altar is the fixed altar, and it ideally should be stone. It may be wood, yeah. but it should be stone. Okay. A, a fixed or movable can be uh, wood, but even, even a fixed altar ideally is still stone, even though it could be wood. Right. The fullness of yeah. the church's vision is that the altar is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation stone. He's not going anywhere. You're not carrying him away. You only have portable altars if there's a necessity. So if you're having a fixed altar in a parish, it should be fixed to the floor and ideally stone. Okay. We have an indult in the United States of America to make the altars out of wood, probably because of our mm -hmm. pioneer days when it was hard to get, you know, a two-ton slab of marble from Rome all the way to rural, you know, Nebraska or something. Um but that's an indult. The ideal is still that the slab of the altar is made of stone. And if you can't, then you have permission for a wooden altar. But you don't have to put a stone in a wooden altar, either fixed or portable. Well, I look forward to reading more about this, uh, Dennis, in the, in the May uh, outer. Yeah, yeah. this will be, you're, you're writing an article on this, so this will be more. Yeah, it's a little, it's in the Q&A section for what, uh, what month is this coming out, Chris? It'll be in the May uh, issue. Oh, so pretty soon. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, good thing. You should write that still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got this one in a day early, believe it or not. This what? Miracle. Yeah. It's an Easter miracle. I will me. attest to this. Yes. Yes. All right. That's probably because he told you the deadline was a day earlier than it was. <laughs> no, he always tells me Friday because he knows I'm going to ask for Monday, and I got it in on Thursday. So I always keep, him, oh, keep, keep you guessing, Dennis. No, mm-hmm. thanks very much for that. All right. Uh, well, look out for that uh, coming out for Adoramus Bulletin. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you, and God, God bless. bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.